Hello, and welcome to Label Sessions Presents. Label Sessions is a global platform that connects you to the best advice from the most interesting people, whether you want advice, mentoring, or ideas. I'm Alex Longson, Art Director at Label Sessions. In this episode, a conversation with Bronwyn Williams. Bronwyn is a leading futurist and chaos whisperer, working as the foresight lead and trend analyst of South African-based agency Flux Trends. From hosting her own series of talks in What the Future Now, to co-authoring the Futurist Insight book, The Future Starts Now, Bronwyn is passionate about her mission to understand the world and create a better future for us all. Maxine at Label Sessions talks to her to find out more. Bronwyn, thank you so much for joining us today for the your Label Sessions Q&A. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for inviting me. Fab. So I think a good place to start is you're famous for being both a futurist and an economist. Could you tell me a little bit around your journey from futurist to economist and what conversations it's enabled you to have? Yes, I think that's an interesting one. I don't think that I've had a linear journey from futurism towards economics or vice versa. I'd almost say it's almost been a bit of a dance trying to enhance and develop both my left brain and my right brain skills. So I find myself studying more in the world of futures and then wanting to and understand more about sort of more rigorous economics and vice versa. I've always found it very, very interesting to kind of zoom in and zoom out and also to look at all the different perspectives that we have available to us as human beings and as academics too. So the short story is my career started out in marketing, marketing of both FMCG products and then also marketing of financial services and thought leadership type products, which is also really, really interesting to do. And then since then, I got involved with trained analysis, which is obviously something really critical to selling both information-based products and more physical-based products, because essentially you need to understand who it is you're selling to and who you're working with if you want to be good at doing your jobs going forward. And from there, of course, the world of trends is a very short step towards the world of futures and foresight. And again, futures and foresight is adjacent very, very complementary to what happens in the world of economics and forecasting too. So I like to think that I can do a bit of both, both the projections and the predictions, which ironically is not done by futurists, but really is done by economists and policy analysts who try and predict the future. So I like to think that I get to do a bit of both. Oh, that's amazing. This mix of left and right brain thinking. So um, if you were doing a keynote today um, or next week, um, what would you want to talk about? And how will somebody introduce you with that kind of a phenomenal background you have? Well, in terms of what I'd be speaking about this year, I've been speaking a lot about expectations shaping our reality and how what you expect to happen changes your behavior and therefore gets you more of what you expect. So in other words, very practically, if you are more optimistic, you're going to get better results. And if you are more pessimistic, you're likely to actually get more negative results in the future, which is hugely unfair, but also hugely exciting when you start to understand that agency can make such a big difference in your personal, professional, or organizational success. So that's something I've been speaking about a lot lately and I think that the message is really resonating because of the so-called perma-crisis time that we find ourselves in where we seem to not be getting back to any sort of sense of normal and as they do say what is normal anyway it's the sort of average of yesterday today and last week which is constantly shifting and this idea that we're not going to necessarily find 
firm ground in terms of certainty going forward. Therefore, we need to really invest in developing our agency and our pragmatism if we want to succeed going forward. So obviously I do that looking at a lot of different real trends, hard data, but also neuroscience, which is something that pops up in foresight and futures more and more these days. And in terms of how I'd be introduced, well, People tend to introduce me as a sort of chaos whisperer, someone who is comfortable with ambiguity and chaos, and also someone that can help people see their way through these, the sense of constantly being stuck in the eye of the storm. Amazing. And when you were saying um, defining things around normal there, um, I laughed a bit inside because I've always known normal as being just a cycle on a washing machine. That's all it is. And when you when you're talking about agency and people's whether kind of it's lack of or um, really trying to take more control in the agency that they have, do you think organisations today are aware of that the agency that people really have and respect that? Well, I answer that as being both yes and no. In that, obviously, organisations do know they have some sort of agency, or they wouldn't be investing in businesses. They wouldn't be investing in strategic planning cycles. They wouldn't be out there doing things. I think that the fact that organisations exist is already really a indication that the optimists and the pragmatists are the people that are succeeding in the world. But whether organisations fully represent or fully take advantage of or fully cultivate the agency of all the various different atoms within that organization, specifically their human resources, which is definitely going to be going forward into the future and has been always in the past. If we think about it, your key source of competitive advantage is your individuals, the relationships they have with each other internally in organizations, and also, of course, how they share and convey the message of your organization to third parties, whether they are suppliers or they are customers. I'm not sure that organizations have fully invested in harnessing the agency of individuals. And we speak a lot about this in terms of change management and culture management and all of that and cultivating things like speak up culture, listening to the outsiders, even within your internal organizations in order to spot better ways to solve problems and also preempt problems that are coming up. And that's what we've got to see more of is more individuals being involved in co-creating futures and also empowering people to use their agency because that becomes a very powerful, positive force for good. Amazing. And if I kind of take you back to when you started off in marketing, as you mentioned earlier, would would that person be surprised to the career that you've developed and are developing? Well, I'm, I, I would answer that kind of yes and no. I always knew that I wouldn't be stuck in a nine to five role. I think that what happened was a few sort of challenges in my personal life really, really sort of forced me to take the leap into doing what I always wanted to do and to discover the confidence to actually be on the other side of selling ideas, not just selling other people's ideas, but again, using my personal agency to develop and develop the confidence and also the academic rigor and of course the real life experience to have something to say and something to share so I hope at least that I've lived up to my own sort of preaching here in that yes taking charge and finding that agency can be hard and it has to be backed up by credibility not just sort of entirely false confidence but I think that it was quite a conscious journey to get to a point where I had opinions advice and expertise that people not only were willing to pay for, but also found value in. And I'm very glad that I had a good decade and a bit experience on the corporate side, actually building real experience and seeing the challenges organizations have from inside in very different industries. 
I'm sure that's helped you frame things in different ways and, and really kind of uh, connect back to that experience you've had. Um, I've noticed that you're someone who, um, what as a as an external as an observer, I see it as a as a mechanism of you cultivating your craft, which is you've I've seen all these different challenges you've given yourself um, where you're kind of sharing your views with the outside world. And ones that I really like from a few years ago where you've taken business business advice from non-business fiction books. Um, I think that's really nice. And you've also been you're posting a daily video, am I right? right now yeah yeah so so i'm doing that on linkedin at the moment but um previously as you said i have i have taken it as my personal philosophy that much like the famous quote said that reading is kind of breathing in and writing is breathing out and it's quite important to collect ideas particularly in our industry where we are trying to be credible expert generalists it's having a base case general knowledge is essential and i still believe that the fastest way to actually learn things rather than just consume knowledge is through the act of reading, which is, of course, a very active pursuit. You have to concentrate, you have to engage with the written text, and you have to keep quiet and listen while the author essentially speaks to you. So I have invested a lot of time in reading and learning, both in a more sort of formal academic sense, but also in a more informal personal sense. I think that is my duty and it is actually my job to make sure that I am consuming information from a broad amount of sources. And then, of course, it's uh, part of that rigor is also sort of testing the ideas that you then collect right and then connecting those dots and then sharing the insights that you gather along the way so i do a lot of writing for a lot of various different business columns and also for magazines but also now increasingly in terms of the social media space i think it's always interesting to start conversations about the things that we're spotting and learning i'm very privileged to work with a team that spends pretty much their whole day just researching signals of change on the fringes of society so there's always interesting things to talk about not all of those things are finding their way into current research reports or into current consulting projects but a lot of those ideas are still worth stimulating thought and that's of course what we're trying to do at the moment so that's all we're trying to do sort of share things that i've picked up connect the dots in an interesting way and then hopefully encourage other people to continue that conversation and not just to listen to my opinion but to ask questions and interrogate what's going on around us to be part of it to be active citizens of spaceship earth rather than just sort of passengers in somebody else's one-way trip to a future that you don't feel like you belong to i think that's so interesting because from talking to quite a few folk in the design community where there's lots of different processes and, um, and, and ways of working i spoke to someone and they were saying that actually they felt that lots of people were learning processes and that was the first things the equivalent of people i guess consuming information but the difference was actually being able to articulate it back and share it and it was the sharing that really completed this learning cycle that took it from just an academic exercise and a consumption to a conversation and I think that's something that you do phenomenally well and are always kind of a feeding a conversation and um, yeah I think that's but it makes me think too how do you juggle things in and outside of work I have this vision that you're always on Bronwyn <laughs> well, I, I like to think that I'm always looking for things, right? If you are in the position that we're in, in the trend sort of spotting space and in the future space, you're always looking for signals of change, but it becomes a habit. It's like collecting or foraging in a forest, if that's what you're into. You're kind of always looking at things that are going on, but that's not necessarily work. Work is when you're actually processing those observations and turning them into something that's useful for a client, for a project.
project that has a directed end. So I also do subscribe to the belief that the future of work is changing and that these ideas of having a job that is a time and a place that's separate from your life is perhaps not the best way to look at our limited time here on earth, right? I mean, you're living all the time, whether you are working or playing or whatever the case may be. So the more you can enjoy the, your work, the less you feel like you need to escape from it, which I think a lot of people are grappling with at the moment. But at the same time, the more you enjoy what you're doing, the more work comes to you. So it, it kind of just becomes a much more full circle, but I certainly don't think of myself as being on and off or at work or not at work. I generally spend my time doing three things. That's reading, writing, and speaking. And I enjoy doing all of those things in various different formats. But that's the thing. So I think that that comes back to the key philosophy of the way we do work. It's like reading is essentially gathering information for a directed course, researching for certain projects, preparing for, for writing or for workshopping or for consulting, whatever the case is. The there, of course, the speaking part is thinks the more interesting, but we haven't spoken about because that's the conversation where it's not a one way discussion or us communicating or me communicating my perspective It's more drawing out other people's perspectives. So knowledge is gained, not just through or built on, not just through reading and writing or writing creates or documents essentially conversations and interactions that humans have had with each other and with the natural environment and that's where knowledge is sort of built on with so you know like yeah in, in terms of the sort of flow there you want to read you want to explore you want to scan you want to gather what's going on in the world and reading not just reading books also reading spaces and places and the world around us then of course you want to document what you've seen which is the writing process but in order to evolve those ideas further it has to be a collaboration with your clients with your colleagues with other people because that's that sort of friction of speech and debate communication workshopping debating of ideas is where things progress, where new ideas come from. And that's also quite a big message we're seeing at the moment in terms of the future of work, the absolute value of serendipity, of unexpected conversations and communication channels, because that's where new things come from, only from sort of us human atoms bumping around into each other do things progress. So hopefully we cover all three bases and then I feel like I'm doing my job, but also therefore you see the sort of idea, those deviation between work and life really do fall away, but in a positive, not in a negative, overwhelming stress burnout kind of a way. In the content that you, um, I've seen that you, you're kind of sharing online, you often, or how it comes, comes across to me is you're confidently articulating what's often an adjacent view. So it might not be popular thinking it's a perspective on things and you're not afraid of having an opinion. Um, is this purposeful? Is this living up to being like the chaos whisperer or a cage rattler? Well, I think part of my role is to provoke. So part of the role of an outsider coming into an organization or into an individual in order to consult is not to tell you what you already know. It's to spark conversation and new ways of thinking. And this is critical, of course, to the whole sort of future studies field. There's this whole idea of co-creation, of creating agency, but also creating friction that you can get new ideas flowing. So in that regard, I think part of my role is to be a provocateur, to, pre to present information hopefully backed with data and science. So most of the things that I speak about are based on something that has happened or a research paper that's been published that people haven't thought about that presents a contrarian, but not necessarily argumentative points of view, but something that you wouldn't think about in your normal way of thinking about things. If I'm just presenting news, I'm not useful in a consulting space, but if I'm presenting ideas in a new way, 
or new ideas, then I can bring something new to the table to start conversation. So a lot of the topics I choose are deliberately chosen to cause conversation. Again, not yet to bring news, not yet to say man bites dog or dog bites man or any of that. Not yet to shock, but also not yet to tell people what they already know. But at the same time, there are some issues that if you do have any sort of public platform, and I'm very fortunate to have quite a big speaking media commentary platform here in South Africa and across a bunch of MENA regions too, you do sometimes have to take a value-based stance on certain issues. But again, I would I always draw that line only on my own personal social media channels or if I'm invited onto a media program to present my opinion, I'm very happy to do so. But then I'm very much speaking as myself behind closed doors in a professional setting. If I'm delivering a keynote speech or if I'm consulting or workshopping with a client, my role is not to present my own opinion. My role is to present provocative information and then ask people in the room to explore what if or what does this matter to me or what now based on the facts that I've presented? So I do try to make that line quite clear. Provocateur, sure, cage rattling, chaos whispering, court gesturing, absolutely in that business. But in terms of offering my opinion, that's only in my personal spaces or when I have been invited specifically to do so. So I think that's also very important, again, in the consulting and in the future space, the idea of the outsider telling you what you should be thinking is quite a dangerous view and it goes very directly against my philosophy, particularly in, as a foresight practitioner or so-called futurist, is this idea that the futurist is not there to sell a vision of the future. It's there to show people what is possible and again to come back to this idea of inspiring agency towards action, towards whatever objective it is you're trying to achieve, whether it's profitability, sustainability, a culture shift or whatever that might be. I think it was really interesting what you're saying, Bonwin, around essentially this idea of creating dialogue, creating space for people to think differently. So in that, in I guess, how important are trends and observing triggers in the world? And I guess those triggers and observations that become trends. Should we be paying attention to them? Should organizations and individuals, do they need to know about them? Well, hopefully so. I mean, I am kind of speaking to my own thing here, so you've got to take my bias with a pinch of salt. <laughs> but still, the idea is that my, our role as trained analysts and as futurists and futures practitioners is to try and figure out, if not what is coming next, what is possible. And the, one of the key ways to do that is to look for, as you said, signals of change. And the first thing there is to scan for those changes. Whatever is, whatever feels weird or strange, we need to look at that because that can change the world in one way or another. You've always got to analyze any sort of sense of anything that seems strange, weird, or out of place to saying, is this an anomaly or is this the beginning of something? And that's always a judgment call. And I think this is where the whole trend analysis field can get into a bit of trouble in that quite often shiny signals of change are misconstrued as being trends rather than just being a bit of noise. And I think we can all remember some very big examples over the last few years, how it was NFTs, NFTs, NFTs in like 2021. And then we ran all to the metaverse in like 2022. And now it's all chat GPT in 2023. And the buzzwords can be very, very noisy and they can be quite distracting. There's also, of course, the criticism in the trend space that quite often trend analysts with a public profile like ourselves would be at like trends where I work can often 
inadvertently actually end up creating trends simply by stating them. And I think a lot of the really popular trend analysts and futurists across the world have become guilty of this, because as I mentioned right at the beginning, your expectations do change other people's behaviors and do change actual outcomes. And if someone with a public platform is saying, you know, like quiet luxury is going to be in this year or whatever silly trend we're talking about, people might end up going out and buying those products because they've been influenced, not necessarily because the trend was already in place. So I think there's good criticism in the trend industry, but it is still important to identify those things that really are trends, things that have an incidence in various different places and things that also have a speed or a direction. So it kind of has to be a vector in order for it to qualify as being a real trend, so both speed and direction. And those sort of deeper signals of change are not just noises that you'll be okay if you miss them. They rather are deeper things that you have to address because they are happening. And of course, I like to use as the example, the deepest trend of all in terms of human ter terms. And that would be the trend that are related to nature. So whether you're talking about sort of like climate change, which is set in motion for a very long time and will have a very long unraveling period, whatever its causes, whatever responses we take, they are long outcomes that come from that long causes and effects that you have to live for and the other big one that we see people dealing with the moment is that of demography which is very hard to escape from this is a real trend you cannot escape from it it's not made up by analysts or by media personalities the fact is that birth rates today will have a material impact on the size of your workforce, the productivity of your workforce, the cost of your social security payouts, all of these things are facts that you cannot shy away from. And that's ideally what you want to be doing when you're looking at trends is trying to separate the noise from the signals and then the deeper signals of things that you're going to have to deal with because that that seed has been sown and there's going to be a harvest and like how you deal with that harvest is what's going to change. And I think a lot of the things at the moment, not just in terms of the natural trends, which are the deepest ones that we can really speak to, also what's going on in our financial systems and our debt-based financial systems and the quantitative easing we've indulged in, those taps that we've drunk from, there are hangovers that will be due, there are bills that are due to be paid and how we choose to distribute those and how we choose to prepare for those organizations are really critical conversations to have. And that's just some. We tend to do our train scanning across our, what we call our six TRE and DS pillars, which is basically like a scanning mechanism to make sure that we look at everything that's going on in the world in terms of not just technology, but also macroeconomics, also natural cycles, also societal shifts, things like generational theory also fit into that. Whatever, however badly it's been maligned, the point is that people born into different points in time have a different common history that is going to change their behavior in the future. So we try and look all across everything that's going on in the horizon and then tie it together in ways that actually mean something and actually matter and not become a mere distraction, which as I said, is a very valid criticism of our industry. And at what point do you see a signal becoming a trend? Like when do you normally have confidence that something's moved from an observation a, a signal that you're seeing to this is a trend? Well, a signal can be standalone as long as it's interesting and conversation starting, it has value in a consulting space, but you have to see it for what it is as being just a signal. In terms of being a trend, you have to be able to spot a pattern. So you should be able to actually sort of plot it on an imaginary visualized graph, if you want to put it that way. And it has to be plotted, plotted across those two dimensions I spoke of, both in terms of time and in terms of space, which is the easiest way to think about it. So a signal can sit by itself on that virtual map that you've got, 
you can pick up a second data point and now you've got kind of two dots on your virtual map that doesn't mean anything yet. By the time you've got a sort of third incidence, you can start to draw a certain pattern. Obviously, you have to have many more incidences in order to make it a valid or a really deep trend pattern. But even as few as three can really indicate that something's happening if those sort of three signals coming from different spaces and different places and they're happening in different speeds, which I think is where it gets really, really interesting. But most people that work in the futures and foresight space have marvelous tools and uh, basically learning models that we can now map these onto to sort of pick up the patterns that we're looking at. So we're always looking for patterns, we're looking for time, and sometimes that requires actually having quite a long, looking quite far back in history, not only looking at the present and looking at the future, which is where our work gets really exciting, also where the ideas of both foresight and economics come together. Economics gives you a world of past data that we can play with, still understanding that trends are still only currently in the sort of present zone and what comes next is of course still to be determined and that's where it gets really exciting. Bronwyn I think that you would be the most incredible person on a pub quiz team with all these different signals and facts that you all have in your brain oh that would be amazing um you mentioned earlier you're based in South Africa and work across EMEA. What can the European market learn from South Africa? I think South Africa is a fascinating place to be. There are a few countries that if you do work in the futures or in the economic space that you can kind of see as having outsized impact on as an indicator of what the future could look like. And I think that South Africa is one of those key countries. I, I'd have to say, like, what are some of the other ones? I think France is also an interesting watershed country to always look at and get a sort of dipstick into the general sentiment of project humanity. But I definitely say South Africa has, in a lot of senses, been a leading, not a lagging indicator of what's gone on in the so-called weird West. That's your sort of Western, industrialized, educated, so democratic part of the world. That's the sort of weird waste term that I'm referring to there. And South Africa does fall into that. It might be an African country, but it has a very westernized political system. It's got a very westernized schooling system. It's got a very westernized cultural system based on the sort of media and content that we've consumed as a society. So a lot of the Western values of democracy, liberty, capitalism, and all that are very baked into our society. But it's a much newer democracy and in many ways it's also more fragile which means we can kind of be seen as a, as a testing experiment or a grand simulation of what happens when certain things break down in these sort of weird western worlds and what's been really interesting about living here is to see how again we have been that leading indicator to a lot of the bigger trends you've seen across across that whole western project even if you take something like um same-sex marriage. We were a hugely uh, a leading country in that regard in terms of minority rights for people with different gender and sexual preferences. You know, like we were ahead of that conversation. The race conversation that's kind of unraveling now in America was something that we have not solved. I mean, we all know South Africa's really checkered, awful racial-based history, but we were forced to have open conversations about that at an earlier date to which other countries are doing it, which is really, really interesting. So we can kind of see the, the conversations that we were having when I was at university are conversations that are happening now on campuses in places like the US and in places like Europe, which is really interesting there. Again, if you want to look at something like climate change, Africa is kind of on the bleeding edge of the consequences of global climate change. We are more precarious from a climate perspective, more vulnerable to things like droughts and floods, not just because of our geography, but also because of the way our cities have been built in precarious ways. So we've been like, we've tested some climate response 
these policies inadvertently before other nations have had to get to that point. So again, a few years ahead of that conversation. We also sort of ahead of the conversation around the, the green energy shifts. Ironically, you might have seen the headlines of the last few weeks that South Africa is on track with their climate emissions goals, not because we well behaved children, but because we've had a climate or we've essentially had an electricity grid collapse here. So we have rolling blackouts that now last eight to 12 hours a day. So we've achieved these sort of climate goals, but at a huge human cost. So again, the conversations around lives and livelihoods, very similar to the ones we had in COVID, are now playing out again in the climate realm. And we having those conversations, forced to have them a few years again ahead of what's going on in the rest of the sort of weird, weird Western projects. If you look, want to look at things like inequality, or technological unemployment. Again, we've been forced to confront those issues again at an at a earlier date, but those issues are still going to come to play, particularly in aging Europe. Again, those social security permits, those demography trends aren't going anywhere. And the, the piper must be paid when it comes to costs of increasing lifespans and a lower dependent versus independent uh, income earning population bias. This is what happens. So we're already testing ideas de facto, like universal basic income in the form of the fact that something like one out of six South Africans is reliant on a social grant to survive. These are early case studies and early conversations, maybe not framed in the same language debates are taking place in Europe and the Americas, but they are issues that those societies are kind of catching up with. Issues of inequality and rich people retreating behind walls, like literally into sort of new neo-fiefdoms. These are all things that we have debated in South Africa. Again, things like privatization of services that we've been accustomed to as citizens, things like security, things like healthcare, things like education. These debates, even things like uh, actual power and water delivery. I think sometime last year in the UK, think tanks are putting out policy papers saying that maybe the government shouldn't be responsible for providing those sorts of services there. And these are, again, conversations we've had before. So I think there are lessons, in other words, that the rest of the world can see from the ways we have responded both well and poorly to the sort of challenges that everyone is going to have to be facing. Hopefully you'll have a bit more money and a bit more time to get your answers right. But I think that seeing where the faults in the democratic and capitalist society lie we are a great simulation as to what could be coming next for, for other nations. This podcast is brought to you by Label Sessions, the global platform that connects you to the best advice from the most interesting people. Around the world, we work with brands to connect their people to true leaders, just like the people you hear on this podcast, for live sessions of advice, mentoring, and sometimes to collaborate on ideas. To find out more, visit labelsessions.com and book in for a demo with our team. At Label Sessions, we believe in the power of great advice. So we believe that it can change the trajectory of careers, businesses, industries. So I wanted to touch on a few things around advice that you would give your younger self and the best advice that you've been given. I'd have to say both, both the advice that I was given and the advice I'd give myself is about the same. I had a music teacher when I was a teenager, when I was aspiring one day to be a singer myself. And she said that, you know what, Bronwyn, you just take a bit longer to figure out what you want than other people do. And you must give yourself that time and space. Because at that time, she was talking to me more about the sort of genre of music that I wanted to sing and I hadn't quite figured out what suited my voice. And she was like, 
take the time you need to figure out what it is. Some people find what they want very easily or what they think they want, you know, like they'll have their, have that path. Others take a bit of time. And I would definitely give that same advice to my younger self, maybe in my twenties, you know, saying like, just, just be patient. You'll catch up. And in fact, there's no sort of race, right? There's no, there's no finish line to get to here. And the figuring out is, is most of the fun, but don't compare yourself in terms of timelines and in terms of those sorts of milestones that time, much like money is to a large extent, a very human construct and that we should play it in ways that the game is fun to play. I think that's great advice for money too, in general, that if you start to see money as a game that we can play and the economy is a game that we can participate in, we can change our attitudes to a lot of the, a lot of the things around us. Well, it's interesting you said that because if you're in a fortunate position with time and money, you can never, you can never earn more time but you can possibly earn more money. So it's really interesting around how you spend that um, and what you have. Um, what kind of advice would you give to people working in the kind of a, the future space? So teams working with researchers and insight people who are possibly in analysis paralysis. Um, I guess, is this a bad thing when they're listening to, we've talked a lot around all the signals that exist and really being disciplined before they become a, um, a trend and applying like rigor to that. I guess, is this kind of a analysis paralysis that often teams that are working with researchers kind of get stuck in the mud a bit? Is it a bad thing? Is it avoidable? Well, I think that in data, much like any sort of form of insight, whether you, whatever you're going up the value chain of information from all the way from data, information, insight, all the rest of it, it's only useful if you're actually going to act on it. And that's why a large, to a large extent, the role that I play in organizational change is kickstarting that change. So you can have all the information in the world, if you not, don't have the courage to actually act on it, to make a decision, even in the basis of no matter how much data you have, if even if you have all the data, you don't have complete certainty. You have to be uncomfortable, you have to be comfortable, I should say, with being able to make decisions even in the face of uncertainty. Understanding, again, coming back to the, the key insight that I opened with today, that by simply choosing a path of action that you believe in, you are going to therefore increase the probability of that outcome being successful. That's that's the that's the that's the sort of good, the happy answer underneath that. The the sadder, more concerning part is that you're never going to have full certainty. The data will never replace making a firm decision in the face of uncertainty and understanding that the world is probabilistic, not deterministic, and that all the economic and actuarial studies and expertise that you can get gather will never be able to give you a perfect answer or perfect certainty because there's, there is uncertainty and doubt baked into all the assumptions that we have. So I think that that's the one, the one way to look at it. The other thing that I wanted to mention there in terms of sort of Data analysis, I think that another mistake we see people making is this trying to convert uncertainty into certainty, much the same way we tried to convert junk bonds into triple A grade securities in the 2008 financial crisis, simply by lumping a lot of them together, right? So we took a whole lot of bad bets and we bundled them together. And then we said, because they lots of different bad bets, they now diversified. So now this can actually be seen as quite a good bet right? So we gave ourselves full, full certainty by increasing information and then trying to think that that's going to, going to actually get us a more certain result. And I see the same thing with data analysis. And I think a lot of mistakes are made when you try and collect a lot of anecdote 
or a lot of qualitative research and then bundle it together. So now it looks like big data and try and make assumptions off that, like a trend forecast would, right? To try and predict the future rather than understanding that in that anecdote, a whole bunch of anecdotes, a whole bunch of qualitative research together doesn't actually give you a quantitative answer at the, at the outside, which comes back to what I was saying earlier is that you have to use the information you have available to you, understand that it is flawed, that will never give you complete certainty, and then still have the confidence and the agency to make a choice, to commit to a future that you want. And that comes back to identifying what it is that you really want becomes almost more important than the data that you have collected and then making the decisions required to increase the odds of getting to where you want to go. So that would kind of sum up my general philosophy towards big data and all those things in general. Useful up until a point, but past performance is no indication of future value, as we learn very early in any sort of e-com degree. And as anyone who has a weather app on their phone will know, that very small differences in assumptions that we make can give you very variant actual results going forward. What are your top tips for somebody from not the, the, the future space, but say in an organization you're consulting with, somebody from the business who are walking into a workshop with you or somebody at the Flux Trends team. What advice or do you have any tips for people who are not used to working with trends on how to really see their agency? We've talked a lot about agency in this conversation. So I'm just curious if somebody who is not from this space and they're being told about future trends, what tips would you give them when they're walking into a workshop or listening to one of your keynotes to think about how they can apply the world of trends and, and futurism to what they're doing? I think the first thing that I try and explain to people is that there's nothing special about me, that a futurist is not actually a real job as much as we get paid to do this work. That's like kind of saying that you are an artist or you're not an artist because of a piece of paper that you got at grad school. That's absolutely not the case. I think every human being is an artist and every human being is even more so definitely a futurist. In fact, if you weren't a futurist, you wouldn't get out of bed because you have to make some sort of predictions, even at a subconscious level to decide what clothes to wear and what whether to take an umbrella out the door or not. Even in those very small things, you are acting as a futurist. You are making conscious choices about your future and you're also setting expectations for your day ahead. And I think just to take that basic human ability to look ahead and to think about what we want, that is of course the curse and the privilege of being a human being as opposed to being any other animal or plant on this planet that lives essentially by instinct. We have this curse to be able to envisage things that aren't yet there and to then take steps and choices as to whether to go towards or away from them. And that, of course, also means that we have the ability to sort of psychoanalyze our own fear and our own concerns about what could go wrong. But still, we have that ability. So that idea that you are a futurist and that you are a co-creator of whatever comes next and that you do have agency is obviously something to try to get across to people. But I think the other thing to get across, which is a, a slightly harder one to do, is this idea of letting go 
of our biases and our expectations of the future, much like kind of therapy for yourself. You kind of have to figure out what it is that you think before you can change the way that you think, because we all have a huge weight of biases about what we think is possible going forward. And we need to be able to sort of lay that down and actually understand that what we believe is possible is actually hugely broader than what or what we don't believe is possible is hugely broader. So there's a whole lot more possibility out there that we are blind to, that we have blind spots towards because of our own internal biases and our own limited expectations. So if you can encourage people to come into these sorts of spaces with the idea that you A, do have blind spots, but also that you must be willing to look into them, even if it does feel a bit frightening. And if someone's thinking about how to design the future of work for their organizations, what are some things that you think they should be aware of? Well, I think, again, we need to be aware of asking why in two different ways. I'll use some of my favorite sort of case studies there. In terms of the question number one would be Chesterton's fence, fence, which I think many people understand that thought experiment, where essentially the idea is that if a fence is there, you before you tear it down, we should see why that fence was put up there. So why could this be here, right? So this is more of a sort of conservative argument towards the future, kind of saying, okay, there are systems and structures in place before we tear them all down, break them all down, say, why was this put there? What problem did this solve? What emergency or crisis was there that resulted in this, you know, enormous red tape in the HR department and that perhaps, you know, resulted in this rule and regulation that seems so silly? Try and interrogate it. Why was it put up there? But also to ask why in the other direction. So Jim O'Shaughnessy is a great mentor and friend of mine. He's that famous investor. He's based in the U.S. now. He's written, he wrote the, the book, What Works in Wall Street. So he's been around for some time. And he also tells a great story about asking why in the other direction. And that is, you can ask why and figure out that there, there was no reason for that fence being built there. And the story that he tells there is to do with his mother's famous Thanksgiving ham, right? So every year as a small boy, he'd watch his mother prepare the Thanksgiving ham. But every year he saw her cut off the end of the ham and throw it in the bin. And like a small boy, Jim being the curious guy that he is, asked his mother why he was throwing the end of the ham in the bin. And his mother said, thought about it, she's like, she doesn't actually know because she had done it because her mother had always done it. So they called granny on the phone and granny uh, was absolutely astonished they were asking her this question because she said well I cut the end off the ham because it didn't fit in my pan I only had a small pan this was like wartime era right so they've been throwing away perfectly good ham and his family for like a whole generation so no one had asked why so in other words that's the question you got to ask when it comes to the future of work why are we doing these things some of the things that we're doing that might seem redundant are very very important like Chesterton's fence that might have been put there to stop a particular predator coming in and stealing your sheep or you can ask why and find out that there's actually no reason for doing that. And that question is so critical, particularly when working with HR departments and also with anyone that's in charge of systems and structures and management reporting schedules, because there's a lot of wasted effort going on. The problem is we don't know what is wasted, but it's much easier to find out what is wasted compared to the world of advertising, where we quite frankly will never really know what part of your advert was advertising budget, was it complete waste and what was was actually good for brand building and reputational processing going further down the line that can't be so easily quantified. But there's a lot of challenges and changes that we have to make in the world of work going ahead because of the way things are shifting with technology, with economies. I've mentioned a few of those things now, but we're not quite sure what we can let go of. And some of the areas that we should be looking to really interrogate right now 
are around that balance between freedom and security, which is the key conversation being had in all future of work conversations. And that relates again, like I was mentioning earlier in my own career, with the, the differences between time and space-based work and outcomes-based work and asking what we can give and what we can get and what it is we really want from our workforce. So whether that is the remote working conversation, whether that is in-home surveillance conversations in terms of making people, sure people are doing their jobs, whatever that might be, but really interrogating why we have the rules that we have in place. Why are we working on a nine to five basis? If there's some studies that show that people only concentrate for three hours a day, who are we kidding paying people for eight hours a day, right? And this goes both ways in terms of both employees and employers having to give and take to negotiate a new relationship, which as I mentioned, I think can be largely summed up by shifting our expectations from income-based agreements and working-based relationships towards outcomes-based agreements and relationships. So it's more focused on what we're bringing on value and less about performance and, you know, ticking boxes and moving through processes. So I think that's a big shift we're looking at at the moment. I hope that answers your question somewhat, but we do a lot of this. So there's many directions these conversations can go in. Oh, it's amazing and completely fascinating. Um, and it's such a pleasure to hear your 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 views on it. But I'm hoping I can get, become slightly nosier now and just do a series of which what we like to call at label sessions, the quick fire round. Um, so where do you go to feed your brain like creatively? Where do you go to consume information? Well, I, I generally do go to books. That has been my, my go-to thing pretty much forever. But I'm also a great big believer in experiencing all your, all your senses. So making sure that you can touch, taste, and also hear and listen to things and look at things is always good. So I do, I do like the idea of travel. Of course, traveling internationally is fun, but there's also the idea of traveling in your own backyard. Uh, I don't know if you've ever read Alan Zabotan's book, The Art of Travel. There's an amazing chapter there about traveling around his own bedroom. So I would say that that that, that would be more my idea of, of travel, trying to notice the things that you wouldn't necessarily notice by essentially being lazy, right? Or what people would term to be lazy, just spending time to observe and collect and bask in the full sensory experience that life is, which is something we don't do much at the moment because so much of both our work and our play lives, however integrated they are, have been flattened by the digital screen, right? So we end up becoming sort of passive consumers of other people's content rather than active observers and collectors of the world around us. Uh, thinking about our own observations, right? Rather than sort of watching someone else's observations, whether it's in a podcast or a TV show or a book. Uh, I think that's really interesting because it's the, the idea of observing things versus experiencing them and then having your own opinion. I think it goes back to what we were talking about agency and experience too. So, um, okay. Back to quickfire. What do you think is overhyped right now? I think overhyped right now would be the conversations around AI. And I know that's kind of controversial to say. Of course, there are going to be big changes ahead, but I think that we're again focusing on the noise. We're not focusing on the point of all of this, right? That no matter what we are selling or buying, we are selling and buying it as irrational human beings. And much like I said, 
animals and plants aren't blessed slash cursed with our desires and our wanting for something better, something more, whatever it is that we want, the computers are pretty much the same thing, whether, whether they are very intelligent, artificial intelligences, or whether they are more mundane selling and buying bots, they're much less interesting to me than people and why it is that we do anything we do, because nothing that we do really does make sense when you stop and think about it. It only makes sense within the terms of the rules of the games that we have set for ourselves, right? So whether you're talking about the global economy or the clothes that we wear or the fashions and trends that we follow, none of this makes logical sense. And yet we have a whole planet moving around in pursuit of these things that we have created. So I think those ideas are much more interesting to me as much as the finest minds on the planet would disagree with me. I think watching the people building the computers are much more interesting than the computers themselves. <laughs> um, so what's your go-to website maybe when you're procrastinating or it doesn't have to be a website, but what happens when you procrastinate? Well, do you I procrastinate? I'm sure I do. All of us do. But I think that procrastination is not necessarily a problem. My key philosophy there is that we don't spend enough time dawdling and just following our interest, whether that is staring at the tree outside my window, which I love to do. I, I could never get bored looking at the tree. So it's like crazy as that sounds. Or whether it is, you know, more more sorts of self-indulgent procrastination, which I think you're talking about. I think procrastination is where we where we get ideas from, the spaces where we not consciously focused on solving a problem are the times when we come up with new ideas whether they are creative or problem solving ideas so again it's it's, a, it's a, there's always a balance of doing work and then sort of gathering the things that you need what it with those insights or observations we got to keep that balance there so big fan of procrastination as much as you can much as you can get away with without sort of you know starving or missing your deadlines go for it but in terms of a website I'd go to, I still do like Twitter, even though you're not supposed to like it at the moment with all the politics around it. I think, still think it functions the way it originally did when it was first described to me when I first joined the platform many years ago, I won't give away my age too much, in that it's best described as essentially a bar, an open bar where anyone can walk in and you can start conversations with slightly drunk strangers, right? I mean, there's always, there's always something interesting on the internet. And Twitter is one of those few places where you can have real-time conversations with very interesting people who just happen to be hanging out at the bar at the same time that you arrived. And that's serendipity. Yes. And what is it about your industry that you love the most that keeps you motivated? I love our industry because it's not one industry. It's constantly changing and it's a bit of everything. So for someone like me, that's very, very difficult to choose what's my favorite, where you're kind of interested in everything. It's definitely the space to be. It's like constantly having a tasting menu and never having to eat the same sort of pre-planned menu twice. So it's quite the opposite of sort of boarding school food, right? Exactly. I wouldn't wish that on anyone. So you read a lot, Bronwyn. Um, what would be the title of your own biography? Uh, I would I'd probably call it something along the lines of adventures of a modern day court jester, sort of perspectives from inside the, the hallowed halls where few dare to get invited, much less be asked to, to speak and perform. Is your favorite color black? Because I've only ever seen you wear black in anything that you do. Do you have <laughs> clothes that are not black? I have a few clothes that are not black. I do like to wear black. I, I don't think black is my favorite color. I think I lean towards green as being my favorite color. But black is definitely my favorite color to wear. And it's the lazy uniform, right? You don't ever have to think about anything. Everything goes together and it's always there. But uh, you don't have to wear the same shape. So it doesn't feel like quite as uniform as wearing like the whole black turtleneck, like Elizabeth Holmes, Steve Jobs kind of a thing. So it's my sort of halfway compromise towards the, the uniform wardrobe, which 
does make sense in terms of time saving and sanity saving, but still allows some indulgence in that, in that regard. Last question, Bronwyn, and it's one that we ask everybody. On a scale of one to 10, how weird are you? Uh, I think it depends on how well you know me. I think I can pass <laughs> normal <laughs> up, up until a certain point. Uh, I, I'd probably- But we know on... normal doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah, pass for normal. What would it be normal on a scale of one to 10 normal? That would be like a solid five, right? But no, I've, I, I, think, I think I'm a bit stranger than that. I think, I think most people who know me would rank me a, a, a strong eight to nine on the weirdness scale. Well, on that note, I think that's a good time to end. Thank you so much, Bronwyn. Thank you. So concludes Label Sessions Presents. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast, no matter your platform. And of course, start the journey with us today at labelsessions.com.